that changes a life forever. After being invaded and enslaved by Persia, Greece won two decisive battles at Marathon and Solnus. The Greeks sent out heralds, also called evangelists, to proclaim the good news to the cities. We have fought for you, we have won, and now you're no longer slaves, you're free. The reality is that we are all slaves, slaves to sin and slaves to death. We are slaves in need of good news. Enter Jesus, God's Son, fully God, fully man, bringing news that would change our lives forever. His news was this, I am the divine, come to you to do what you could not do for yourself. I will take what you deserve so you can have what I deserve. You have no idea how much it will cost me, but you also cannot imagine the depths of my love for you. It is a gift that I give freely, so repent. Repent from all the ways you've run from me and follow me. Follow me because I am the only way to eternal life. Follow me because I'm the savior you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything, yet I have humbled myself for you. Follow me because I died on a cross for you, because I'm your true love and your true life. This is my good news for you. This is my gospel that you have been saved by grace and that you are slaves no more. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Belong. We're so glad that you're with us. And I'm just so excited about this next season, particularly the next 21 days and the next four months, honestly. And the Lord really laid on my heart that we should begin in August and read through the four Gospels, which is why the bumper video is talking about the Gospels. So in August, we're going to read through the book of Matthew. In September, the book of Matthew, Mark, and then um, October is going to be Luke, and then November is going to be John. And what our goal is, is we're asking, and I understand it's a big ask, but I'm asking all of us if we can try and read through the book of Matthew this month every day. Now, as much as you can, I understand it's a big, big ask. There's 28 chapters. It's a lot. And in fact, for me, I can't sit down and read that much. And it's just, it's, I'm not that, I'm a more of a audible person. So I actually got the NASB version of Stephen B. Stevens reading it for me. And I listened to it in my truck as I'm going by. And man, the context has just been jumping out at me. And I put that link up on our website. So you can go click on it anywhere you get your audible books. You can go get it. It's really cheap. It's like eight bucks to get it. And it's the entire Bible. And then there also is another screen up there that shows you which one to start on. So it, it's all broken down by chapters and, and file numbers and all that stuff. So I'll show you the one that is Matthew. And you can join right along with us. Well, today is the first day of 21 days of prayer. And every year since we started our church, we do this twice a year. And you probably have heard us talk about it. In the beginning of the year in January, and that's prayer and fasting. And the beginning of the last part of the year in August, and it's just 21 days of prayer and feasting. You still get to eat. I'm really, really happy about that one. I'm not having to give up my sweet tea for these 21 days. 
but it's a wonderful, wonderful time for us to get together, and we'll be live tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. where you get the stream. You're more than welcome to be here with us in person, but most people are probably going to want to watch it on the stream. You may want to just set an alarm and watch it in bed on your Apple TV, on your Roku TV, on your phone, or however you want to do it. Bring your laptop and set it up there. However you want to do it, we're all going to be live at belongdfw.tv or in the app, however you find us for online. And we'll be online for one hour from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. That is actually in the a.m. I was really surprised to find out there is an a.m. I'm not a morning person. That's when I'm sleeping normally. So if I'm up, you understand the great value that there is in this and the great benefit. And you may be like me to say, I don't understand what in the world can you pray for an hour? I'll be running out of stuff in one minute or two minutes. And then like, what am I going to do? Just like look at the ceiling tiles or something. Well, it really is not like that because it's all structured. And, and we're going to be working out of this book, the prayer for first book. And if you don't have this, we can send one out to you. So just shoot us an email and we're happy to get them. The people are here. We have them in stock for you. And it's also a download on our website. So you can just go pull it down. Of course, it won't be as pretty as this, but it'll be something you can actually print out and have it ready. So if you'll jump with me right into the the word of God this morning in James chapter four, verse two, it says, yet you do not have what you want because you do not ask for it. So I want us to kind of set the stage that this is what we're going to do for 21 days of prayer. And today's actually day one. So this is counting as your day one for it. So hey, everybody, you've already started. Isn't that good news? You already got started on day one. So tomorrow is just a continuation. You don't have to try and start something tomorrow. And John 16, 24, it says, until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. And you may be like so many people that you've never asked God for anything. This may be your scripture that up until now, you haven't asked God for anything. And this is look what he says, the last part of that. Ask and you'll receive and your joy will be complete. So I'm encouraging everybody to have at least one thing that you're asking God for in this 21 days of prayer. In this time that you're coming and saying, God, I'm not only coming, I'm not only going through the the prayer guide, but Lord, I'm asking you for this. It may be a family member. And for those of us who've done this before, you may be asking for the same thing you've asked for before. You may have been asking for the same thing you've asked for for years. But let me just tell you, God is not on our timetable. Keep asking, because the Word of God says, ask and you will receive. It doesn't say when, but it says you will. But if you haven't done the first part, you've never even asked, then how do you expect you're going to receive? Jumping right into our message this morning, as, as I was preparing, I was getting really like just planning on talking maybe for two minutes about the, the, the gap between Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, which is the first book of the Gospels, the first book of the New Testament. And there was 400 years in between there. And I was going to talk about that, and I was just going to talk about it for just a minute and just move right on. And as, as I started doing that, I, I found this just incredible amount of context that there was there. And I want us to dig a little bit deep. So I told Michael and Lenore that I, I feel like I'm going to be a history teacher this morning. So you got to bear with me. And we're going we're gonna to go by really, really fast. And you're probably going to have to go look at the stream or get the podcast and rewind to catch some of this stuff because I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. I got a gajillion streams for us to see and some reference points. But I want us to see that between Malachi and Matthew was a 400-year 
period of time called the silent years, where there was no voice or no direction from God. There was no prophet that was speaking. Now, if you could imagine that, the generation in the Bible is, is widely accepted to be 40 years in between. So a father to a son, that's one generation, 40 years. But actually, the definition is that exact thing. The, the number of years between the father, when the father was born, and when his first offspring was born. And, and, and as I was researching this, it actually came up that today it ranges from 20 to 25 years is reported as a um, generation that is today. Because by, by age 20 to 25, most people have had their first child. Now, I understand there's exceptions to that, but these are averages that are seen there. So some suggest that even in the, in the times of Jesus, if you made it, if you lived to the age of 20, that they thought you could reasonably expect to live to be 60, uh, 30, excuse me. And then it's even possible to live to 60. My, times have changed. Isn't that crazy? That if you made it to 20, you could probably make it to 30. If you made it to 30, you could probably make it to 60. And it's just kind of a crazy thing. But you see, my whole point in explaining all this is from Malachi to Jesus, likely there had been 16 to 20 parents having children, having children, having children, having children with no voice from God. No prophet there giving them instruction like it had been there from the very beginning. Now, the Hebrew way to teach your children is verbally, and, and you accomplish that from, from zero to five years old. There's Hebrew school, and, and you're just giving them, you're just constantly imparting them. It says, write my, my laws upon your lips, and you know, and they had the, all the different things, and I'm not going to dig deep in that because I've got so much to get to. But I want you to think about how difficult it would be. And imagine having that many generations not hearing from a man of God. And as I was thinking about that, imagine the telephone game where you're sitting in a circle and you whisper into somebody's ear something and they turn and whisper it into somebody else's ear and they whisper it into somebody else's ear. And by the time you get back and they whisper it back into your ear, it was not even close. I mean, the funniest times is when you actually write it down so you can compare the two and say, man, you're not even in the ballpark. Now imagine an entire nation going 16 to 20 cycles of parents having children, trying to pass down the word of God trying to pass down the word of God. And there was no written word of God other than in the temple. And only the, 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 the rabbis and the people who worked in there actually had access to them or could even read it. So this is all just verbally going on. And, and they're just starting to go far off from the voice of God. But isn't that where many people even today find themselves? Far from God. But to put our next mini messages, actually the next four months, into context, I want us to look at this 400 years. Because as I always say, I want you to put yourself in the Bible. Don't just read a nice version and say, oh, that was a nice story. But I want you to actually put yourself, whether that was me that was in the book of Matthew. What if that was me that was facing this situation yeah, I can see how it turned out, but what if I couldn't see it yet? Because that's where we're all at. That's where I'm at. I can't see the end of my story yet. I'm still waiting 
for what God is going to do. And I, and I have a whole bunch of pe- things I'm going to be reading here, so please bear with me. I'm going to be looking at my screen a lot more than normal because there's a whole lot, as I said, I feel like I'm going to go into teacher mode here, and we're almost going back to school a little bit. And there's going to be screens that support what I'm saying as it pops up in here, and I'm getting a lot of this, and you'll understand from where in just a moment. The royal line of David, so King David from the Old Testament, it had fallen on evil days, and the people who they knew who their right successor was supposed to be, and it was Zerubbabel, the royal prince, yet there was no king on the throne in Israel. And they were a puppet nation under the domination of Persia. In the book of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, his name is actually given to us. But I want us to see that there were no political schemes or factions among them, nor were they divided into groups or parties. They were just wandering along. They were just all coming out of Matthew, I'm sorry, out of Malachi. They were just coming and just kind of hanging. Now, they were already being occupied by these other countries, but we'll see that how this all goes down. Now, at 435 BC, so before Christ, before the turn of, of Jesus coming on the scene, it turns to AD. I'm sure you know that from your schooling. At 435 BC, when the prophet Malachi ceased from writing, so when he finished writing the book of Malachi, the center of the world power began to shift from the east to the west. And upon this time, Babylon had been the major world power but this was soon succeeded by Medo-Persian Empire. And at the height of the Persian power, there arose in the country of Macedonia, which we now know as Greece, in the north of the Black Sea, a man by the name of Philip of Macedon. And, and all these names are important, which is, it's kind of like reading the first couple of chapters in Matthew. There's just like so much like mind-numbing of this, but, but they're all there for a reason. So again, this is all to provide context. He became the leader of his own country, and he united the islands of Greece and became their ruler. And Philip of Macedon's son was destined to become one of the great world leaders of all time, Alexander the Great. And you undoubtedly remember him from your times in school, and you'll remember who Alexander the Great was and how he conquered all these nations. He ended up conquering the entire world. That's who this guy is. So this is all tying in here. Now in 330 BC, a great and tremendous battle between the Persians and the Greeks um, entirely altered the course of history. In that battle, Alexander, as a young man, only 20 years old, led the armies of Greece into victory over the Persians and completely demolished the power of Persia. And the center of world power then shifted farther west into Greece, and the Grecian Empire was born. After that, a year after that historic battle, Alexander the Great led his armies down the Syria world towards Egypt. On the way, look at this, on the way he planned to lay siege on the city of Jerusalem. So here Alexander the Great is conquering everything and his next thing, the thing that's on his radar, the things on his map, he's drawing lines, how he's going to get there is Jerusalem. He's going to take over where God's holy land is. As the victorious armies of the Greeks approached the city of Jerusalem, word was brought to the Jews in Jerusalem that the armies were on their way. Look at this. The high priest at that time, who was a godly old man by the name of, yeah, I can't pronounce his name. And he's mentioned in the book of Nehemiah, it's Jadua, J-A-D-D-U-A. 
he took the sacred writings of Daniel the prophet and accompanied by other hosts of the priests dressed in white garments and went forth and met Alexander some distance from the city. Remember, this is the whole thing of Alexander the Great. All of this is from the report of Josephus, the Jewish historian. So this isn't from the Bible. We're going to get to the Bible in just a minute. But this is all from a totally outsider who is just a historian who's telling us this story. And he tells us that Alexander left his army when he heard, and he hurried to meet the body of priests. And when he met them, he told the high priest that he had had a vision (laughs) the night before in which God had shown him an old man robed in a white garment who would show him something of the great significance of himself. According to the account, the high priest then opened the prophecies of Daniel and read them to Alexander the Great. In the prophecies, Alexander was able to easily see the predictions that he would become the notable great with the notable goat with the horn on his forehead who would come from west and smash the power of the Medio Persia and conquer the world. So Alexander saw himself in the Bible. And, and the high priest in this entourage came, and as he's coming to destroy and conquer Jerusalem, they come and say, Hey, this is what was written thousands of years ago. Look, you're in the Bible. This is describing you. And the night before, he had a dream that this man with a white, all dressed in white, this old guy was going to come and show him. And I mean, just the power of God working in this story is just absolutely amazing. He was so overwhelmed by the accuracy of this prophecy and, of course, by the fact that it spoke about him that he promised that he would save Jerusalem from siege and sent the high priest back with honors. During this time, Grecian influence was becoming a strong in Palestine. A party among, arose among the Jews called the Hellenists who were eager to bring Grecian culture and thought, it, in, and thought into the nation and liberalize, liberalize some of the Jewish laws. So here, Greece has got a great influence on the land of Israel and the people that are here are now trying to say, hey, let's, let's move from being a God-fearing country and following the law of Moses and the Jewish laws. And let's just kind of, let's, let's do more of what they're doing. It was then that they split into two major parties. And those, there were those who were the strong Hebrew nationalists who wanted, pres- who wanted to preserve everything according to the Mosaic order. So here they were saying, hey, no, this is our ancestors going all the way back to creation. This is going back to Moses, the Mosaic order. We're not wanting to move from this because God set these principles out for us, and we're not wanting to depart from those. So there was those strong ones, and they actually resisted all the foreign influences that were coming in to to disrupt the old Jewish ways. This is the party that became known as the Pharisees, which means to separate. So time out. We're going to be seeing so often as we're looking through the Gospels, the Pharisees did this and the Pharisees did that. But before I read this, I didn't have a clue other than they're religious leaders. I didn't know, perhaps you didn't either, that they were the ones that were trying to hold on and not let common culture come in and take over. They're not wanting all the Grecian ways to come in and dilute what they've had going all the way back to Moses. 
They, in fact, were the separationists who insisted on preserving traditions, and they grew stronger and stronger, becoming more and more legalistic and rigid in their requirements until they, they became the target for some of the most scorching words our Lord ever spoke. They'd actually become religious hypocrites, keeping the outward form of the law, completely violating its spirit. So here, where they're trying to hold on to everything going back to Moses, they missed what Moses and the God of Moses was telling them through that and only became rigid in trying to hold on to it. But isn't that so easy to do? That we try and hold on to the past so much that we miss what it was all about. Now, mind you, this is going through several hundred years of no man of God speaking and saying, no, you're wrong. That's not the way you're doing it. That's not what God is saying. This is what God is saying and keeping you on track. They've just been going, oh, and they're just veering further and further off and they didn't know it. On the other hand, the Hellenists, the Greek lovers, have become more and more influential in the politics of the land. So they're the ones that are saying, hey, we can, we can forget about all this stuff of Moses and your history. Who cares about that? We're in, we, you know, Greece is here and they've got all these cool things. So how about we might, we'll, we'll just assimilate into this. And they formed a party that was known in the New Testament days as the Sadducees. And they were the liberals. So here we have these two different things going on here. Long before Jesus came on, as we'll see in just a second, it, this is between 338 B.C. and 284 B.C. So this is all being transitioned in this whole time going on here. See, they turned from their strict interpretation of the law and became rationalists of their days, and they ceased to believe in the supernatural, that God was a supernatural in any, in, in any way at all. In about 284 B.C., also during this time in Egypt, that was under the reign of one of the other people, I can't say their names, Ptolemies, I don't know. The Hebrew scriptures were translated for the first time into another language. And a group of 70 scholars was called together by the Egyptian king to make a translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Book by book, they translated the Old Testament into Greek, and it was given the name of the Septuagint, which means 70 because of the number of translators. And, and hopefully, if anyone's been around church and hearing different things and Bible studies and, and um, Sunday schools and different things like that, you've heard some of these things thrown out there. And I'm, again, trying to give you context and let us all understand. About 203 B.C., a king named Ant Antioch, Ah, uh, these names. Antiochus the Great came into power in Syria to the north of Palestine. He captured Jerusalem from the Egyptians and began the reign of Syrian power over Palestine. And he had two sons, one of whom succeeded him and reigned only a few years. And when he died, his brother took the throne. His first act was to depose the high priest in Jerusalem, thus ending the long line of secession beginning with Aaron and his sons through the many centuries of Jewish life. So if you remember back in the Old Testament, God, when they came out of Egypt, God said Aaron and his sons are going to be the ones who are responsible for being the church pastors and the ones who take care of the temple. And they are the priests. They're the priestly line. And it is for them. You, man, you, if you're born into that family, that is what your destiny is. That is the plan of God on your life because that is what is going on here. 
He came in. The first thing he did was he shut that down. And he appointed Onias the third. I'm sorry, Onias the third was the last of the hereditary line of the priests. Then under his reign, the city of Jerusalem and all the religious rights of the Jews began to deteriorate as they became fully under the power of the Syrian king. Now, in 171 BC, now, remember, Jesus comes around about 0 BC or, you know, 20 BC or somewhere around there. We're not exactly sure, but it's right in that whole time. So this is 170-ish years before Jesus. Antiochus invaded Egypt and became, once again, Palestine was caught under a nutcrackery of the rivalry. Palestine is in the most fought-over country in the world. Isn't Palestine still one of the biggest issues going on? Is this nothing new? Palestine is... Um, Jerusalem is the most captured city in all history and it has been pillaged, ravaged, and burned and destroyed more than 27 times in its history. The Maccabees, Maccabees sorry, who were an Asmonean family began a line of, new, of high priests known as the Asmonean dynasty and their sons for about three to four generations ruled as priests in Jerusalem all the time having to defend themselves against the constant assaults of the Syrian army who tried to recapture the city and the temple. During the days of the Maccabees, there was a temporary overthrow of the foreign domination, which is why the Jews look back at this time and regard it with such a tremendous veneration. During this time, stay with me. I know this is a lot. I I told you it's going to be like going to school, so please stay with me. During this time, one of the Asmonean priests made a league with a rising power in the West, Rome, and he signed a treaty with the Senate of Rome providing for help in the event of a Syrian attack. So here they're struggling to try and keep everything going on. And they're like, hey, the only chance that we have of being able to push back a Syrian attack is if we sign a treaty with Rome. Because Rome is on the rise and Rome is going to, is, is becoming a power. It's an army that they can be behind us. Like we would have treaties with all these other countries that, hey, if they attack you, we're with you. If they attack us, you're with us. And though this treaty was made in all earnestness and sincerity, it was this pact that introduced Rome into, picture, into the picture and the history of Israel. Now, 63 BC, so we're landing really close down to Matthew and when Jesus comes on the scene. As the battle between two opposing forces waged hotter and hotter, Rome was watching and kind of seeing what was going on. Finally, the governor of a, of a city, I can't pronounce all these things, a man named Antipater, and his descent, who was a descendant of Esau, Esau and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob made a pact with two other neighboring kings and attacked Jerusalem to try and overthrow the authority of the Asmonean high priest. This battle raged so fiercely that finally Pompey, the Roman general who happened to have an army in Damascus at the time, was besought by both parties to come and intervene. On one side, had more money than the other, and persuaded by that logical argument, Pompey came down to Damascus, entered the city of Jerusalem, again with a terrible slaughter, overthrew the city, and captured it for Rome. From that time on, Palestine was under the authority and power of Rome. You get this. Now, Pompeo and the Roman Senate appointed, appointed Antipater as a procurator of Judea, and he in turn had two sons, kings, and he made his two sons kings over Galilee and Judea. 
And Antipater made his son king of Judah and is known to us as Herod the Great. Now, as you, as you read through uh, with us through the, the book of Matthew, I want you to see some of these names are going on. I want you to have the context and how this all fits together. So they're not just random names. Meanwhile, the pa- pagan empires around had been deteriorating and disintegrating. Their religions had fallen upon evil days, and the, the people were sick of polytheism and the emptiness of their pagan faith. So I want to say that again. The people, because of all these false religions, are all crumbling, and they're all just deteriorating because there's no substance to them. The people were sick of polytheism, poly meaning many, and theism being what you believe, that there's many gods. No, they're saying that it's the emptiness of that. They hated that. And the Jews had gone through times of pressure, and it failed in their hopes and their efforts to reestablish themselves, and it actually had given up all hope. There was a growing air of expectancy that the only hope they had, now again, put yourself in the Bible. We're landing right when Jesus enters the scene here. The, there was a growing air of expectancy that the only hope they had left was the coming at last of the promised Messiah. But all of this was fulfilling the scriptures and it was setting the stage for Jesus. So you see, when we we crack open the book of Matthew, you discover an entirely different world and a a different atmosphere than what it was in Malachi. Rome is now the dominant power in the earth, and the Roman legions have, have spread throughout the length and the breadth of the civilized world, and the center of power has shifted from the east to the west to Rome. Palestine, though, is still a puppet state, and the Jews never did regain their own sovereignty until we know, not that many years ago for us. But now there's a king on the throne, but he's a descendant of Esau instead of Jacob, and his name is Herod the Great. At this time, the people of Israel were split into three major parties, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. In the smaller group, the Essenes could hardly be designated as a party, but not long ago, however, they came into great prominence in our time and took on new significance because they'd stowed away some documents in a cave overlooking the Dead Sea, the documents which became light, and the discovery by an Arab shepherd boy became known to us as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So all of these people in history, this isn't just a, a historical document. This isn't, the Bible isn't just this great little fairy tale. These are all things that are documented and seen all throughout history by other people outside of the Bible. This was absolutely fine, fa- fascinating to me. And I know I'm going very long and I apologize, but I'm not apologizing. And I have to give credit to this. And I, I messed that up at the, at the front. And I think Michael has a screen for it of where this came from. The, um, there's actually a book, that um, an article that I read through a lot of this. Yeah, it's called The 400 Years Between the Old, Test- Old and the New Testament by Ray C. Stedham. And I want to give him credit for a lot of the context that we've had in here. But we see that God has done over and over all, through all of these changing of hands what was going on and how he was moving pieces on the on the chessboard to get where we're at now in Matthew. <sighs> that is a mouthful. So now we find that John the Baptist coming on the scene in Matthew 
is the first prophetic word in 400 years since Malachi. So in Matthew chapter 3, I said all that to get here, so please stay with me. We're going to go fast. Matthew 3, verse 11, Jesus is coming to John. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, John is out there and he's, he's, he's preaching. He goes, as for me, as for John, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, Jesus, who's coming after me, is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. In other words, he's saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I want you to see those two things. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And see, John is even not talking about Jesus and what happened, because when did they get fire, baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? That was after Jesus left when they were in the upper room. That's a whole other subject that Lenore is going to talk about. I keep giving that all over to her. One of these days you're going to get it, and she's going to just like lay us all out, all out on the floor. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized to you, and do you come to me? He's been telling everybody, hey, I'm not even worthy to, to take his shoes off, untie his shoes, and now Jesus says, hey, I want you to baptize me. He's like, no, 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 no. Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying, John, hey, God's got a plan here. We've got to walk through every step of that, even though it makes you uncomfortable. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. That's why Jesus gave us the example that we're supposed to be water baptized when we make a decision to follow Christ. And when you're going down, you're being buried with Jesus, with Christ, and when you're raised to walk in newness of life. As Jesus is being raised up, at that moment, heaven was open, it says, and they saw, he saw, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Now get this. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, and I, with him I am well pleased. Now, I, I, this, again, put yourself in the Bible. This isn't just a nice story. All of heaven is like, ah. he's like this huge megaphone. God has never spoken like this before. And here, the one time he's screaming down from heaven, this is my son. God himself, a voice from heaven, thundering. The ground is undoubtedly shaking, validating who Jesus is. I'm, I'm belaboring this because I want you to see this in a minute. This great moment. Can you imagine being there and you just see this guy walk up and he's like, hey, I want you to argue a little bit. And then, and then John baptized. Maybe you're in the back. You can't hear everything they're talking about. And then all of a sudden when he comes up, this, the spirit of God descends upon him and this voice speaks out. Man, that is something for the front page of the newspaper. From there, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. By, by whom? He's led by who? He's led by the Spirit that descended on him like a dove. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to go and enjoy the fruits of all his labor. He's led into the wilderness to have a great, you know, spa day. He's led to have angels ministering to him. No, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God led him to be tempted by the devil. That is just mind-blowing as I was listening on the, on the, the podcast, the, the, the guy talking, though I'm getting all flustered here. 
It blew my mind. The Spirit led him. For Matthew 4, 5, it says, Then the devil took him to this place, the holy city, and had him stand on the highest point. The devil took him? Why is Jesus going with the devil? Why is it Jesus like, I'm not going with you, devil? Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, Then the devil took him to another place. He's following the devil around. Why in the world is the, the Son of God, our King of glory, Jesus, he just God said, this is my son. Why is he following the devil? Why is the devil leading him around? Because God wanted us to see that Jesus was going to be tempted like we're tempted. That Jesus is going to be in situations that he's going to be forced into situations like I am. See, if he just said, hey, I'm God, I'm, I'm the son of God, get away from me, and, and just flicked him off, we say, well, Jesus, you really can't understand what I've got because I can't flick the devil off. I can't make him just leave. And let me just say this too. It wouldn't be tempted by the devil if it wasn't tempting. He was trying his best to get Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. He'd, he'd already had three tries he had at him. He was three strikes, you're out. For his written, worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. Can I suggest to you the angels were all around all the time. They're ready to be there and to help him out. Goes on. Verse 12. Then Jesus began to preach. When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And from that time on, Jesus, verse 17, began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So John was saying this. Jesus comes in, gets baptized by John. John gets arrested and put into prison. We'll see in a moment why. And then Jesus picks up where John left off. In John chapter 3, verse 30, talking about John the Baptist, he's talking and he's describing this thing of himself. He goes, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. John recognized that his ministry was for this period and for this purpose. But now that Jesus is on the scene, Jesus now needs to increase. Where the crowds are growing bigger and bigger and bigger for John, now they're going to grow bigger and bigger for Jesus, and they're going to grow smaller 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 for John. And John became in prison. Matthew 11, verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, John was imprisoned, okay, He's already there. He's stuck in there, okay? Heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He heard that Jesus is increasing. He heard that Jesus is doing these crazy miracles and all these great things are happening. He sent his disciples, verse 3, to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? Wait a minute. John, weren't you there when you baptized Jesus and this voice from heaven? How many times have you had that happen before? Spoke out said, this is my son. Are, are you really going to question? Are, are you the one who's to come or, or should we be looking for somebody else? His own family. <laughs> Someone in the ministry with him. At a major turning point in Jesus' life on the earth. is questioning the validity of, John, of Jesus. And Jesus took it in stride, verse 4. He didn't go off on him like maybe I would have and maybe, maybe you know, some of us would. He, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
And, and I see this as a checklist. And, and, and it's the blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And, and I don't have time, but go look at Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus was reading from Isaiah of what the purpose of the Messiah is. But this is the checklist. He's checking them all off. He goes, hey, hey, this is what's going on. Go tell John this is what's going on. Verse 6. And also tell John, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Isn't that crazy? He slides that one in there. like, yeah, and just don't get all hung up on this, John. Matthew 14, verse 3, we'll see now what had happened to John. For when John, when Herod, Herod, remember we talked about him, Herod, <laughs> had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias. Because of who? Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. So Herod is wanting to get with his wife, his brother's wife, and he wants to have this relationship apparently with her. And, and get this, this, this one also baffles me. Verse four, for John had been saying to him, how is John the Baptist talking to Herod? How does he have an audience with the king? How is he there to even know what, what John the Baptist thinks? John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful for you to be having relations with her. She's your brother's wife. No, 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 time out. You can't just do whatever you want to do. And, and he's giving this thing, and Herod got ticked off. Verse 5, and although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd for, because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, get this, the daughter of Herodias, the daughter, so his niece, oh, this is all messed up, the daughter of Herodias, his brother's wife, so his niece, came and danced before them, and, and I'm sorry, came and danced and pleased Herod. Now in the, the text, you'll see it here, it says be, dance before them. Before them is actually added by the, by the translator for, for continuity and isn't in the scripture. It literally says, she came and danced and pleased Herod. And the, the image I got from looking at, at the legitimacy of, the, of how this all works and the, the real things is it's like she's giving him this really sensual dance and she's like giving him a lap dance and she's just like all over him. Now, so much that verse 7, that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asks. So she's using her female wiles to get him all stoked up that whatever he wants, she can have. Again, this is his niece. So messed up. First of all, it's messed up because he wants his brother's wife. But now his niece is doing all this dancing on him and getting him all riled up. But look at this, verse 8. Having been prompted by her mother, her mother Herodias put her up to this. Her mother said, hey, this is how you do it. This is how you get him all set. And when he's in this kind of a state, he's going to say, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And when he does, this is what I want you to say. Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. That's messed up. And although he was grieved, the king commanded to be done because of his, his oaths and his dinner guests. He had his reputation. So they sent and had John beheaded, and they brought the head on a silver platter in the midst of this birthday celebration. 
This is one of the craziest stories you can read in the Bible. It's in the Bible, crazy stories in the Bible. Verse 12, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard what had happened, John the Baptist is his cousin. Jesus started at 30. John was born around about the same time. So they likely grew up, at least not maybe every day, but having all this interaction. They, They were probably really, really tight. This is his family that was just murdered. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He wanted to go and grieve his cousin, someone who was there at a, a crucial time in ministry for him to, to baptize him, and God used him in an incredible way, was murdered. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot to the towns, from the towns. And when Jesus landed, so Jesus is in the boat trying to just be off by himself and just kind of grieve and, and just let the natural human emotions of that grief going on. As Jesus came, he saw that they were there as Jesus lands the boat. Look at this. And he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. So even Jesus in his grief, even Jesus in his difficulty, in his time of trouble, when he just wanted to be off by himself and just, wouldn't we have said, hey, can't you give Jesus, come back next week. Hey, give the guy a break. Give him a day or two. Come on, it was his cousin. You know, the press secretary is out there like, he's not taking any comments right now. All right. No, Jesus had compassion. And I tell you, when I heard this, as I went and read this, it made me love Jesus even more. It's like, oh my gosh, Jesus, you didn't even get a moment. So those times that I feel like I don't even get a moment, man, man, you can identify with that with me. Verse 15, as even approached, the the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. You may know this story. Jesus replied, verse 16, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have here five loaves and two fishes. This is where Jesus fed the 5,000. Now, I've heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I've heard the, the part of that where they're there and where he tells them to go, and I've heard all that, but I never put it in context that it was right after his cousin was put to death. When his cousin John was, was in this struggle, and, and then he, Jesus is grieving, and he's just trying to be off by himself. You see, Jesus didn't just face that difficulty. In Matthew 12, Starting with verse 46, when Jesus was still talking to the crowd, another situation, his, mother's, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And many people have, have described the context of this, that they're saying, hey, he's kind of going out here on a tangent, and this is an intervention. We're going to try and, and get in here and say, Jesus, you need to chill out because you're kind of out there. And they've all come together. It's a family affair. They're coming to say, Jesus, you need to stop. You need to roll it back. You need to do, 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 do. So verse 47, someone told him, Jesus, your brothers, your mother and brothers are standing outside. Another translation says your brothers and sisters are standing outside wanting to speak to you. 
Notice they didn't come in and just say, hey, Jesus, we're here. Glad you're here. Hey, man, it's good to see you. I'll see you in a minute. Hey, a big hug. You know, what are you saying now? Let me listen. They're like, you need to come out here and talk to us. We're going to set you straight, Jesus. But look at what Jesus said in verse 48. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Talk about a slap. But then he says in verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father is my brother, sister, and my mother. Jesus faced all these different situations that were coming to him. And and note takers, this is something good for you to write down. And again, I know that this is very long. Stay with me. In history, God was orchestrating the rise and the fall of leaders and nations. In fact, in Romans 13, verse 1, it says, Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So even as we listen to all the different people, and as we saw all the different people that are coming in and going out and all this stuff, it, God placed Alexander the Great and put him in the Bible knowing that there's a day that he was going to be coming to take over Jerusalem, and the high priest and a team of priests were going to go out there and say, hey, listen, this is you in the Bible. Today is no different. Whether we like who's the president, who we like the leader that's there, he And someday she is placed there by God. See, the 400 silent years, it was still in the plan of God. Where there's no voice speaking and saying, hey, you're getting off track here. It was still in the plan of God. See, we might look at that and say, God was ignoring earth. You may think that today, that God's ignoring me. God doesn't care about me. He's not ignoring today either. See, can I just give you some bullets really quick, especially if you're taking notes. John the Baptist was powerful and influential in his day. And he had a strong following of disciples, but he fulfilled his role. But when he fell into difficulty, he questioned God. He questioned, are you really the one? Even though he had heard with his own ear, like everybody else, this is my son. He questioned God, and then he was offended by Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was tempted by the devil, and he quoted the word of God to the devil. Jesus quoted the qualifications of the word to John when he's like, hey, are you really the one? And then reminded him not to be offended. Jesus was moved with compassion even in his grief. Finally, some points I want you to see. Jesus was led, into the, led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted. He was tempted in all things like we are, Hebrews 4, 15 says. He faced family troubles and situations. A possible family intervention when they're trying to tell him, hey, you're crazy. We need to pull you in and reel you back. He was, he was questioned by his own cousin about what God had said, and that this is my son. But Jesus was able to set aside his emotion and disappointments to accomplish his mission. Please bow your heads with me. I often ask this question, where do you find yourself right now? Do you feel far from God? 
in the midst of this history lesson and the context that is here, when it appeared that the, those people in that 400 years were far from God, he was very near, working a plan for them. Today, God is speaking to you. Even when you feel that you're far from him, you may even feel that quickening in your chest right now. God wants you. He wants a relationship with you. He desires to be with you in the midst of your family issues, in the midst of your rejections, your failures, your disappointments, even in your grief. And as I was preparing this, I really felt like there's going to be people listening to this that's facing grief in a family member that's passed away. And you just don't know how you're going to get past it. And I want you to hear the words that are from the Bible that Jesus was able to get past his grief to go on to his mission. Man, receive that right now if that's you. Jesus was able to get past his grief to accomplish his mission. Don't stop where you're at. But today's your day. And if you're ready to begin a relationship or maybe begin again, simply say this prayer with me. Say, God in heaven, I want to know you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus for paying for my sins so I don't have to. I ask you to forgive me for making mistakes. I choose you and I surrender everything to you. Be the Lord of my life, number one. And the best way I know how, I'm going to live for you with all my heart. Today, I give you my life. Father, I pray for everyone who's, who's hung in there with me through this longer than normal message. But God, as we, if we've heard the context of the Gospels, Lord, as we've seen who the different players are, Lord, as we've set the precedent, Lord, for 21 days of prayer and, and going through the Gospels and, and hearing your words, God, then we saw the struggles that Jesus went through. How John the Baptist was there for him. Put Jesus on this high pedestal, was there this incredible moment in history and then turn around and question him. God, thank you for being there with us. Lord, I pray that you would affirm in everyone that's hearing this message their plan and their goals that you have for them and their worth for you. Lord, I pray a special prayer for that one that is struggling with grief over the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a son or a daughter or a husband, a mother, a father. And they can't get past it to, to continue life. Lord, I pray that these words are freeing to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we're closing, if that was you this morning, if God moved in a way and you made that decision with us, we simply want you to text the word NEXT to 469-289-1114. Again, that number is 469-289-1114. You see at the bottom of your screen, text the word next. And we want to hear your testimonies, and we want to hear uh, about what God is doing. You can send us prayer requests to be joining in what we're praying for in this 21 days of prayer to prayer at belongdfw.com. And your uh, information of your testimonies, send it to info at belongdfw.com. And lastly, if you want to be a part of our financial success, and we talked about last week uh, the challenge to be all in, 
to find your place and belong and to have community and make a decision. And one of those decisions was to begin tithing and to begin giving to God. And if you want to do that with us and be a part of us, again, at the bottom of your screen, it shows you can go to simply to givetobelong.com. Well, if you will stand to your feet and let's just pray. Father, I know it's a long message, but Lord, it's so packed with what you're doing and what your plan is for all of us and how much you love us. Father, I pray that you will just seal my words. Lord, that you'll accomplish all that you set it out when you gave me this message. And I speak a blessing over your people. Lord, those people that have paid tithes this week to you. Lord, that have given to this church. Lord, those who have sent in a connection cards. Lord, that have sent prayer requests. Lord, as we begin 21 days of prayer, Lord, as we're asking you to move. Lord, I thank you the sense of expectancy that I have. We give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.